Have you ever had someone be honest enough with you to say, hey, you really shouldn't be wearing that? <laughs> that doesn't really suit your body shape. Well, that's the wrong color to be wearing with your skin tones. I've never understood that kind of stuff, but I have had a few people who've loved me enough to kind of go, Tim, don't wear orange because your skin's orange and it doesn't go good with you. Or your body shape, you should probably wear these kinds of things. Anyway, apparently that's a thing. You're meant to wear the kind of clothes that suit your body shape, whatever about that. What we're looking at today is, did you know that there's a kind of behaviour that suits who you are as a Christian? And it's almost like the clothing that you put on, the life that you live, displays beyond yourself kind of what you're like and really that you are a Christian, that you do belong to God. Um, your behaviour as a Christian is like clothing that you put on and we're going to think tonight about the kind of clothing that you wear, the kind of behaviour and actions and words that you give off. And like I said, this is an extremely practical passage. There's something in this for every single one of us. And so the question I want you to ask yourself tonight is... Um, do, what clothes do I put on as a Christian? Someone's looking confused there. Maybe I've confused by introducing that concept. But here's the deal. There's clothing that fits a kind of Christian. There's behaviour that fits who you are. Um, do you know what to wear as a Christian? Um, let, let's, let's kind of fly through this passage because it talks to older men, younger men, older women, younger women, slaves... Um, now, to go into the detail for every one of that, it's going to take a really long time, so I won't do that. We'll fly through it, and I want you to zoom in on the category that you know is really for you. Um, and then what we're going to do is we're going to pick the one thing that actually seems to be pretty common for all of them. There seems to be an article of clothing or a type of behaviour that's really common. We're going to dig in there and ask the question, why is that so important for Christians? Now, some of you might have already picked up on it through that throughout the week, and that's cool. Maybe you'll spot it for us. So let's fly through. The first category there is, well, verse 1 says, you, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Sorry, that's where I get my concept of clothing from. There's a type of behaviour that's appropriate to sound doctrine or Christian belief. And, and this is what this passage is speaking about. It starts with um, verse 2, older men. Um, Titus is to teach older men to be, so older men, I, I don't know if you feel yourself as an older man here today. I, I don't know at what point you become an older man. I think you drift towards it. I kind of feel it in my bones, although I still like to consider myself a younger man. Um, maybe if you're in your, I don't know, I'm just going to say beyond me. So maybe if you're 50 and above or 60 and above or 70 and above, older man category, here's your list. Tune in and listen to this. You need to be temperate. So what's temperate? I think it's, it's, it's a moderate temper. It's, it's, it's an even keel. You're not going up and down and freaking out and then chilling out. You're, just, you're temperate in the way you engage with the people around you. So carnage is going on all around you. And it will. But you're able to just kind of walk through it with an even keel. You're, you're the one that others can come to and go, oh, I'm just going to hang on to this kind of solid, even keeled man in the midst of all this carnage. That's older men, temperate, worthy of respect. Being older, you will get respect. You at least ought to get respect for being older. Our, our society's kind of changed over the time. You can blame the baby, the baby boomers for that with all the social revolution in the 60s and 70s. And now it's interesting because all the baby boomers are the ones who are older and saying, where's my respect? But they're the ones kind of flipped it a little bit. So there's one for you to reflect on. Um, be worthy of respect, though. It is right that if you're older, you ought to have respect in our society. Absolutely. 
Our society is not great with that. You ought to get respect, but here's your task to be worthy of the respect that you get. Yep. So temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, and endurance. That word sound is really simple to temp, um, temperate. It's the concept of being, you're the solid one. You're the one that whole families can kind of hang off. You're the one that whole communities can look to. You're the one that churches actually can kind of grab hold of in the midst of kind of crazy times. You're, the, you're, a, you're, a, you're a man of sound stature. Yep. So there's, there's your clothing, older men. And now I, I don't know any older men who would say, yep, killing it, you know, nailing all that. All, but, but here's what you, even as an older man, aspire towards this. And actually, let, let me just say this. This list are the things that need to be told because they don't come naturally. For older men, older women, younger men, younger women, that's, that's the deal. None of these things are coming naturally to anyone, so you need to be told to pursue them. So older men, here's the things for you to pursue. Now, if you're an older man, I almost want you to just tune off now for a little bit, if you want, and you just camp out on what you've received there and spend some time reflecting on that. Don't start thinking about what everyone else needs. You think about what you need to grow in and how you need to pursue that. And younger men, just this is where we're heading, all right? This is who we need to become. Later on in life. So there's older men. Um, now, verse 3, older women, if you consider yourself to be an older woman. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live. So reverent in the way they live. That kind of word's usually used in regards to, in, in, in this kind of time in history, that the priest would be reverent in their coming before the Lord with awe and living humbly before a powerful God. So there's the concept of an older woman. She's being told to be reverent in the way that she lives. Um, not slanderers or addicted to much wine. There's something you need to understand about what's happening in Crete, that, you know, the church where this letter is written to. It's a, it's a city that we know a little bit about with that, you know, back up in chapter 1, verse 12, where it talks about, you know, Cretans are, what does it say, um, always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. That's the culture in Crete. But there's a particular kind of Roman kind of new thing happening in this kind of time where a lot of the, a lot of the women would be encouraged to throw off all the shackles of your typical family institution and, and, and actually just embrace freedom. And part of that was to indulge in drinking and slandering and, and sexual promiscuity. Actually, that whole city, you basically put a banner over this city, which is basically indulge yourself. If you've always wanted to do it, if you always felt like you should be able to do it, do it. And, and even as people have become Christians in the church, they're still living with that culture in their mind and in their heart. That's not too dissimilar from the day we live in now. Like we actually get told, go after all your dreams or go after all the things you've always wanted. Don't hold back. Life is for living, all that kind of stuff. And so it, it very well may be the same in our time as well. But older women are being encouraged to not be slanderers or addicted to much wine because that's what they're actually pursuing. So you've got all the older women in the community drinking way too much. And what often comes with too much drink is a loose tongue. Yeah, maybe you've Maybe you've done that kind of thing and you've actually damaged those around you. Just to gossip and to talk bad about others is, is often what comes with drinking too much. And so here's the, here's the word, and it's a, it's a pretty direct word, isn't it? Older women, don't, don't hit the bottle hard all the time. And don't develop that habit. During lockdown in this season, 
Apparently, alcohol sales have gone through the roof, along with so many other types of medication because people are not knowing what to do with the agitation and the sadness and the carnage and the feeling out of control. This is where, as Christians, we actually get to come to God and have Him solve our issues rather than hitting the bottle or everything else we're tempted to do. So if you've developed a pattern during lockdown where you're now more um, dependent on alcohol than you were, turn, turn away. Turn away. So older women, um, be reverent in the way you live, not addicted to much wine or slanders, but able, but, but teach what is good. So here's the thing, older women, you are to teach. You are to be teachers in the way you live and actually in the way you speak. And this is good. I mean, you'll see in Titus where it talks about who's meant to teach and do this and that. And there is, there is a teaching role in public that's pretty clear. It's to be the male elder. Um, but you don't want to reduce teaching to just the person who's doing this on a particular moment on a Sunday. There's teaching going on left, right and centre in a community of God's people and appropriate teaching moments everywhere and in, and in Bible studies and in just one-on-one catch-ups and there's teaching going on everywhere from the Word with your life and older women be encouraged you to teach. And look at verse 4 as to who particularly are you to be considering who you're going to teach with your life, verse 4. Then they can urge younger women. So there's, it's the younger women you're meant to teach with your life. And then we get a list of things which in our culture, in our day and age, makes us squirm. I don't know if you squirmed when the Bible was being read. Um, maybe not the first bit, to love your husbands and children or to be self-controlled, busy. But when it gets to pure, but when it gets to busy at home, kind, subject to your husbands, that's the kind of language sometimes that we can react to. Um, and partly because when we read these kind of verses, it almost sounds like the Bible saying, go back to the 1950s version of the household, where the woman has to be stuck in the home with an apron and busy at home, and, and the man's the only one who's to go to work, and there's this real stiff paradigm. Um, when you go through the Bible and see its teaching on men and women, you'll see actually it's far broader than that. This is not teaching simply a 1950s paradigm, though not everything about that paradigm was evil. You know, it was just a bit overcooked in some ways and the social revolution actually helped unpick some of those things, but I would say has swung too far in many ways. But we just need to kind of come to the Bible and say, what, what, what's this telling us about how to live? Well, young women, um, love your husbands and your children. So really, a young woman is someone who's old enough to have a husband and a child even. So it's not, it's not really, really young teenage women or whatever. Love your husband and your children. Again, what's happening in Crete at this time is the younger women are catching hold of this new freedom movement as well, which means ditch the shackles of any kind of, you know, restriction to be stuck in this household business and I'm going to get out. And particularly sexual promiscuity was a big thing in the city at the time. So younger women are actually kind of out and about and actually there's no one with the reins in the home. There's actually no one caring for the children in the home. There's... And yet, if you, if you learn anything from Titus, the household, the home is so important, so important in, in birthing and building faith in little ones, so important in actually being the very bedrock of church life, so important actually for the fabric of society. So the household is to be paid attention to. And what you've got here is a bit of a, bit of a, um, 
a bit of a movement of everyone kind of ditching attention to the household. So really what's being told here, um, older women, younger women, men, young men, is actually, no, 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 pay attention, invest in the household. It's really important what happens in the home. Be busy actually leading the home and shaping little ones to grow up. Build a culture in the home. Be pure, self-controlled. Now, you might have questions you want to pump at later. That's totally fine. We'll throw it around. Absolutely. Um, Verse 6, young men. Similarly, encourage young men to be self-controlled. That's all you get, young men. (laughs) That's the only thing young men get told. And I wonder whether it's because young men, you just can't tell them too many things. They're only going to catch one. Um, So even young men who have got wives and children, probably just up for one. So here's one for you. Self-control. Self-control. Now, Titus is also to model something else to them in the way he teaches, um, that there be integrity and soundness and speech so that no one can be condemned, um, so that those who oppose you may not be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. But young men, self-control is the thing for you to aspire to. It's the thing for you to put on. And the clothing that you put on as a Christian, the behaviour that you live in as a Christian, will do one of two things. It will either repel people from God or attract people to God. Do you notice the language there with, um, uh, or further up with the tail end of the young women thing, so, so that no one will malign the word of God, which is criticise the word of God, or actually you know, um, have goes at who God is if this is the way you're living. Yeah, the way we live as Christians actually will actually repel or attract people towards the God who lives in us. And then the slaves, let me just say a quick thing about slaves. Often we see instructions to slaves and again we balk and we say, shouldn't the instructions be to kind of get rid of the whole institution of slavery? That is to misunderstand the institution of slavery in the first century. By and large, it functioned as a bit of a social welfare system for people who found themselves in a financial situation where there's no government to support you. You're either destitute on the street or you hire yourself out as like a household, live-in, nanny, servant in the household. That's the concept of slavery by and large in the first century. And and so um, if anything, slaves in the first century in Christian households are elevated and given dignity of genuine members of the household, which is actually what you see here. Slaves are actually being addressed. Slaves are to be taught. Slaves are to be considered genuine members of church. Slaves are the ones who are actually becoming Christians themselves and then left with this dilemma, how do I live as a Christian as a slave? Do, Do I just run from the situation I'm in? And the instruction there is, no, be... Do a great job. Be trustworthy in your job there. Now, some of these principles obviously can be applied to employer-employee kind of situation, um, but it's primarily for the slave-master situation. Yep. Now, you might have questions about that as well. Um, and and look, at, look at the tail end of that. Look, here's how behaviour attracts people. So that in every way they may make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. It's interesting. It, you might have an ESV where it says you... Um, by living this way, you, you adorn the doctrine of God. Not that there's anything ugly about God that needs to be dolled up to be made look attractive, but your behaviour will actually, uh, can actually put on display how glorious God is or do the very opposite. How many people living on the Coffs Coast, their thoughts about God are tiny? 
Their thoughts about God are like, they don't get how wonderful he is in any way. They just don't get. And your behavior, the way you live, can actually put on to display the very glory of God and actually draw people to seeing how wonderful he actually is. That's why it's so important, the way we live. Repel or attract. Now, I'm going to pause there. I've got, that's a quick fly through, I know. And feel free to pile questions later in just a minute. But let's just come to the thing that's in common with most of those. What is it? Self-control. Good on you, Lauren. Yeah, it kind of pops out, doesn't it? It's actually explicitly mentioned in, I think, three of the five, but it's implicit in the other two as well. Self-control is the big one. So let's just ask the question, why is, what is self-control? Why is it so important for Christians to develop self-control? Let's just kind of ask that question. What is self-control? The word kind of says it, doesn't it? It's the ability to control yourself. So every day you'll make, you'll speak words, you'll make decisions, um, there'll be actions that come from you. Where do they come from? Because it's entirely possible for a lot of your life and a lot of your words to just be impulsive, which is basically to say um, what you're being controlled by is impulse or feeling or emotion or situation or circumstance or peer pressure. Yep. And heaps of your behavior can just be really reactionary and you're not thinking, you're just reacting. Christians are called to self-control, which is actually where you think into what you do. You don't just react by impulse. You're able to take a breath and decide what's what's the most helpful way to react here? What's the helpful kind of behaviour to have here? What's the helpful words to bring here? Um, and, And doing that from a place of really clear thinking and actually doing it according to certain values and principles and a plan for your life. That's self-control. The ability to pause and think and act based on values, principles and plans rather than just the peer pressure of people around you or sudden impulse from emotions or urge and desire. Does that make sense? So, are you self-controlled? I think probably a better question to ask is, where do you struggle to control yourself? Because the the truth is none of us are completely self-controlled. So where's the area where you can spot where you're not controlling yourself? You're just behaving from impulse. And actually sometimes you might not even be able to spot your own things. It might be someone who's close enough to you who can lovingly tell you, "Uh, let me tell you, darling, here's where it is, you know. Or let me tell you, mate, here's where it is. It might be things like this. Are you impulsive with your sexual appetite? You're like, I've got an urge and so all urges must be satisfied. Maybe that's it for you. Are you impulsive with your anger and your temper? Whether it's driving and someone cuts you off or whether it's in the, in the sport or hobby that you play or whether it's just at home in the everyday life. Like, Are you impulsive and does your anger just flare up? Are you impulsive with your words? Do you suffer from what some people call verbal diarrhea, where basically you just say whatever's going through your mind? There's there's no filter. It just comes flying out your mouth. And um, people are damaged by what you say or confused by what you say. You know, Are you impulsive with your words? Are you impulsive with your spending? 
you know, I, do you, are you just a sucker for advertising? And when things just come your way, you're like, do it. You know, just you flick your money towards whatever you feel like buying, which is the whole of the advertising industry is based on the fact that we will be impulsive to a certain level. Otherwise, advertising would never work. But, but are you kind of chronically impulsive with your spending? Are you impulsive with food? Drinking? Caffeine? Medication or drugs? Where do you struggle with self-control? Have you got something? Can you just acknowledge it to yourself? Can you spot it? And can you now decide to pursue self-control in that area? Which would look like starting by pleading with God for help, that he'd help you develop self-control in that area, and then just going after it. And I'd, I want to encourage you to go after self-control like, a, like an animal, if that makes any sense. It's probably the wrong word to use, but go after Self-control is a beautiful thing. If, if for a minute you think self-control, boring, stodgy, no. Nah. You, you'll notice when you're around a person who actually is quite self-controlled, you'll feel safe and comfortable in their midst. And if you're around someone who's not very self-controlled, you'll feel on edge and you'll feel nervous. So who do you want to be? Another beautiful thing about self-control is self-control in one area of your life will likely lead to self-control in other areas. So you might just spot it a bunch of areas and you're like, I don't know where to start. Just pick one and pursue self-control there and you watch it help you pursue self-control in time in the other areas. The final thing I'll say is this, not final thing, but the, the last thing, well, the thing about the third thing about self-control I want to say is this: self-control actually displays the fruit of the spirit. You know, if you ever read Galatians five, and you, the fruit of the spirit, one of them is self-control. This is this is part of meant to be the fruit of our life, but it's meant to be the fruit of our life, not simply by I'm just going to try really hard to be self-controlled. No, it's the fruit of your life because the Holy Spirit lives in you. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Yeah. So here's, here's where the hope comes from for you and I with self-control, is that, is that this is God by His Spirit, the one who is the, the one of ultimate self-control living in you, and that is where your and my hope can come from, that you can be enabled to pursue self-control because of the one who lives in you. And the more you do display self-control, you actually display the character of God. You allow people to know what God is like. And this is what I want to, want to talk about just for a moment. Have, have you considered the self-control of God? Have you considered that to be one of the key aspects of his character? That he's the God of phenomenal self-control. He doesn't simply act on impulse according to his feelings but instead he acts according to considered, clear thinking, according to his plan. Yeah? I mean, we saw it in Jonah that God is the one who is the God of compassion, slow to anger, abounding in love. But, but don't think for a minute God doesn't get angry. Just because it says he's slow to anger doesn't mean he doesn't get angry. Don't be mistaken there. Our God is emotional. The reason why you and I have feelings and really intense feelings is because we're made in the image of a God who has feelings and really intense ones. 
God gets angry. Now, his anger is perfectly righteous. There are things that are right to be angry about, and that is what God gets angry about. Yeah. Our God gets jealous in the right way when what belongs to him goes off after something else. He's perfectly right in his jealousy for his people. God gets grieved, you know. God gets grieved when his sons and daughters just kind of run in the opposite direction and are away for it breaks his heart. God feels intensely and emotionally but he does not act simply according to his emotions. Because if he did, we'd be snuffed out. And, and he'd be right to. Yeah. But God doesn't act simply according to his emotions. He's self-controlled. And so what he decides to do is he acts according to his clearly thought out plan and purposes for what he intends to do with the whole earth. You with me on that one? And, and, and just as an example, just think about some key moments in history. If you know your Bible, you'll know these moments, but think with me for a minute. Adam and Eve, our first parents, his image bearers, the ones that are the first parents of the whole human race, very early on rebel and reject him. And in doing so, you know, break the only command he gives them, which is to which is to basically tell God to get lost. We're not going to live under you. Now, God is heartbroken and right to be angry in that moment and, and right to actually wipe them out. But he doesn't. He kicks them out of the garden. But, but there's grace even in that. He clothes them and lets them live Yeah, because he's got a plan. He's not done with humanity because it's first parents bailed and ruined. He, he's actually going to persist with his plan. Think about Noah. You know the time of Noah? If, if you know your Bible, Genesis chapter 6, you get this horrific report card on humanity where God goes, look, I'm looking at you and here's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing that every inclination of your heart is only evil all the time. How's that for a verdict on humanity? And God decides, I'm going to wipe them out. That's almost like there's like the emotional reaction, they're done. But God doesn't just do that, does he? He actually preserves for himself a family and shows grace on humanity because he's got a plan. He's got a plan to keep humanity alive and he's got a plan actually to bring salvation to humanity. He's going to bring a saviour through a particular family line. He's got a plan. See, see how he doesn't just react according to emotion? reacts according to considered thinking and a beautiful plan and purpose to save. I mean, you can think about Israel, you know, the cycle that Israel kept going through as that rebellious child that would run from God. He'd discipline them but not wipe them out. He'd hold on to a remnant for himself. But think about Jesus with me for a moment here. His, Jesus is God on view to us in the most explicit way. Um, Jesus felt quite emotional at certain times. You might remember when he went into the temple and ripped that apart. But, but it was premeditated. He went out and made a whip first. And part of doing it was to fulfill prophecy. And a big part of it was because what was happening in the place of prayer shouldn't have been happening and he wanted to change that. And he, and he was trying to make a statement about what God cares about. Um, but if you think about Jesus and his composure and self-control right throughout his life, it's phenomenal. And it all is actually on view most clearly, I think, in just in the, on the cross. And actually in the lead up to what he does on the cross, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. 
You know the intense emotion Jesus is feeling in that moment? How he wants to run and he even pleads, God, is there another way? Can you take this cup from me? There's intense emotion being felt there. But how does Jesus decide to act? It's not simply from his pain and his agony. He acts according to the plan. You know, the clear thought out plan, which is salvation for us. And so he sticks to the plan. He doesn't run. He doesn't call down an army to wipe out those who are hanging him on the cross. He endures the cross and he bears the shame and he takes our sin so that we can be forgiven and we can receive new life and, and know him and live with him forever. It's phenomenal. Guys, can you see that we have a God of phenomenal self-control? You catch that? That's why we are to live with self-control. We display his character. It's, it's the clothing that we put on. It means salvation for us. A God of self-control means salvation for us. Hallelujah. You know, if God was not self-controlled like he was, we'd be dust. But because he had a plan, he was controlled enough to stick to his plan. We get to be saved. We get to be forgiven. Um, there's hope for us because self-control can be ours as he, the God of self-control, lives in us by his spirit legitimately outworking his character, teaching us to live a new way. And thirdly, self-control means we get, it gives us a pursuit in life, a, a determination to go after being people who pursue self-control. Now, I'll pause there. Um, we kind of dug into that particular feature of self-control. I'm looking around at some faces that look some of you look with me, others you look like I'm just keeping you awake. Bless you for hanging in there. Um, what do you got? You got some thoughts? Have you got a question? Have you got a comment? Got something to fire away? That's good. Uh, beautiful, honest, vulnerable question, Sally. I love it. Did you hear the question? Sometimes when you decide you're going to work on something, you get worse at it. Does anyone else want to testify to that as well? Is... Okay, good. Good, good. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, it's like when you start spotting a certain type, you get interested in a certain type of car, you see the car everywhere. You ever had that experience? Um, yeah, you, you spot something and then you, yeah, it might be that you're not getting worse, you're just seeing how, how poorly you are in that regard. That's good. Um, what else could it be if you are really getting worse at that thing? Trying to do it in your own strength? Yeah, it can be that, totally. You're like, all right, I'm just, I'm going to do this, you know. Power of positive thinking, I'm going to sort myself out, I'm going to conquer this. Maybe you go well for a week and then you come crashing down harder. Yep. So, so if that's the case, you spot something. And I'm, I'm hoping that you have spotted something for yourself tonight that you could possibly share with a brother or sister if you want to, that they can pray for you about this. But can I encourage you to begin by praying for yourself and pleading with the Lord to help you? Now, can our God help us? This is what I cling to in my most despairing moments about a sin that I just keep, I'm trying to, ch you can give up on yourself and think I'm just never going to be able to do it. But can you give up on God? You can't give up on him. Is there anything he's not able to do? No. Do you believe he is living in you? Now, you might be a point yet where you're not sure that he is. It may be that you haven't yet actually put your trust in Jesus in a way that God has come to actually take up residence in you. 
In which case, you've just been living this life where you, it's a Christian religious life and you're banging your head against the wall and it's never going to work and it won't do you any good or anyone any good. You, you need God by his spirit living in you for there to be real change. Yeah, it can be superficial change through a whole bunch of human ways to improve yourself, but real change comes from God. And if he is really all-powerful and he's really in you, then there is, you, you're not allowed to despair. Well, you're not allowed to be stuck in despair. <laughs> Yeah, you got to remind yourself the power of the one who's in you, who is able to give you everything you need for life and godliness. So spot it, plead with him, entrust yourself to him. Yeah? And, and catch this for a sec, I'll give you this as a final one, unless someone else has got a comment or question. Or, yeah? oh, I've been going for a while, I don't know. Okay. I gave you the clothing one. I don't think that really worked. What about this one? Telescope, microscope. You know the difference between a telescope and a microscope? A microscope zooms in on something that's really kind of small and kind of looks pathetic to the naked eye or not visible at all and tries to make it big and visible and impressive. Yep. Telescope, you know, zooms in on something that is big and impressive and wonderful and glorious and, and makes it known to the person who's far from it. We're telescopes. The people around you who don't know God are to look through you, your life, to actually see the glory of God that to their own naked eye they haven't been able to see up to this point. And the way they look through you to see the very glory of God is through how you live in front of them, yeah? which is why our behaviour as Christians matters so much. You can either draw people to the glory of God and how wonderful he is as our Saviour and Lord or actually repel them. So by the grace of God and the Spirit of God, we give ourselves towards putting on the fruit of the Spirit, the clothing of God, behaviour that fits our new body shape that is the body of someone who is now in Christ. Yeah? Let me pray and then we're going to have another song. Yeah? So you guys might want to come up and get ready to go. Father God, we, we offer ourselves up to you and we plead with you that you would pour out your spirit and well up in us to change us, that we would display your character more clearly. Left to our own devices, uh, it's, it's pretty terrible. Um, the, there's a small amount of improvement that can happen, but really the hope for us, Lord, comes by the fact that you live in us. We long to put you on display better. We long for more people to see your glory and your majesty. Please allow, please do a work in us so that you can do a work through us. That more and more would come, see your glory, bow the knee, and you'd get the glory that you'd do. Amen.